Everyone wants to be successful, but how do you get there? Passion, hard work, proven technology. Great things happen when you combine these elements. And that's what we'll explore today as we learn more about farming in the Mid-Atlantic region, including sustainability, personal sacrifice for our country, and much more. Welcome to Redox Grows, an in-depth look at key issues affecting agriculture and the people that make it all happen. I'm Jim Morris with Redox Bionutrients in Burley, Idaho. Joining me remotely is Tyler Adams from Willard AgriService in Maryland. Tyler, I appreciate your visit. Thanks, Jim. Tyler's worked as a crop advisor at Willard for about five years. Willard is a key ag retailer working with our company. Today, we're going to look at agriculture in the Mid-Atlantic region, challenges and opportunities, farming with the environment, and the redox fit, among other topics. So first off, Tyler, for those like me who live in a different part of the country, can you talk with us a little bit about your region, the crops that are grown, your climate, soil, challenges, and opportunities? Definitely, yeah. And really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys and just kind of discuss you know, our unique mid-Atlantic region over here uh, that a lot of people probably don't have much experience uh, with the agriculture in, in this area. We're unique, right? Especially when you compare the mid-Atlantic to agriculture across the country. So in our region alone, our soils and conditions, they change drastically from one subset area to another. And I'm talking just 30, 40 minutes away. You know, for example, where I'm currently located in southern Pennsylvania and north central Maryland, which is the core of my territory, We've got soils that average between 3 to 10 CECs and only 1 to 5% organic matter. 4 to 5% organic matter for this area is actually doing pretty good. Uh, I have some customers, if you go a little further south, they might have a CEC of 3 to 5 with an organic matter of half a percent, so less than 1, which is more representative of the lower eastern shore. So it really varies. You know, We have a nice dark, deep topsoil in Lancaster County. Uh, which a lot of people are familiar with, a lot of produce there uh, in Amish and Mennonite communities. And then you go 30 minutes west and we have some really shaly, rocky, hilly ground. Uh, if you keep going further west to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which a lot of people probably are familiar with, you get into what we call the red ground. You know, this is a heavy clay with a really poor porosity. And what we say, it freezes twice a year, uh, once in the winter. And then, of course, again, in the summer when it gets really dry and rock hard. So we definitely got some challenges. Um, a lot of variability as a, as a retailer and as a rep in the region, you know, really understanding your crop and understanding your customer and the ground he's farming. So currently we're in late spring, early summer, and we're actually really dry right now, but we do get an average rainfall of about 45 inches per year. And it really struck me last I was in Burley uh, over the winter, uh, I met with some other distributors, which is a phenomenal opportunity. Uh, talking with guys from around the country, and we're standing around on the on the balcony there, and talking to a distributor from California, and you know he said he might get a tenth of what we get, four to eight inches of rain a year, and it really kind of blew my mind how agriculture can vary so much across the country. As far as opportunities in this region, Jim, we have you know a lot of really good marketing opportunities for growers. You know, we're really close to some dense populations. Um, we got New York only three, four hours away, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Richmond just south of us. Um, so especially when you look at direct-to-consumer produce and orchard crops, a lot of good opportunities. Uh, we also maintain a really strong basis on grain crops. A lot of that is due to the local 
uh, chicken uh, operations, you know, in meat and egg land, especially on the eastern shore, high demand for feed. Um, so a lot of that goes to there. I did enjoy our visit in Burley, and when we did visit here, you mentioned the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And doing a little more research on it, it's a massive area encompassing six states and more than 64,000 square miles. So what is happening there, and how does all of that impact farming and your job? It's a huge topic of discussion here. Um, Like you mentioned, six states. Uh, I believe Maryland is probably the one with the largest microscope. Uh, Obviously, the Chesapeake Bay is largely surrounded by Maryland, uh, although many states feed into the Chesapeake Bay. So the whole watershed is known for its regulations, especially around fertilizer usage. Um, We have nicknames for all the people that really want to regulate and uh, put a microscope on fertilizer usage, especially for farmers. So like I said, it's a microscope on the farmers and they're really looking closely at how they're utilizing their inputs. So this is both what I see as an opportunity and a challenge. Uh, It's a challenge because farmers and retailers alike We can't just go make recommendations ad hoc. We have to be very mindful of realistic yield potential, the goals, current soil test levels, nutrient levels in those soils, uh, to be sure we aren't over-applying and exceeding regulatory requirements, you know, which can actually impose a fine on the grower. The opportunity side of it is that I believe we're ahead of the curve when you compare us nationally. Using products and practices that are more efficient, we've been doing this for a while now, nutrient management plans in this region have been a huge factor for many years now, but we're more efficient at getting nutrition into the plant because we have to be. You know, at Willard, we aren't selling fertilizer. We call ourselves a plant nutrition company. So overall, it's a really unique environment. Uh, We're constantly adjusting to different crops and conditions and, of course, the ever-changing regulations. Spending most of my uh, professional life in California, I did see and work with growers on a lot of the regulatory situation, and I think it is a double-edged sword. Um, there's certainly some positives. It's something people will be dealing with far and wide, and it's good to get on top of that. So whether you're in the mid-Atlantic, West Coast, Pacific Northwest, or Europe or Asia, sustainability seems to be gaining momentum. How do you view that? Meaning, do you think that this is a trend that will stay? and it will be more regulations, et cetera, on growers that they'll have to meet moving forward? Yes, this is my opinion, but sustainability isn't going anywhere. I think we need to determine how to effectively manage the message both to the grower and to the public. You know, my belief is that growers and retailers alike, uh, we need to be proactive in ag education. You know, growers contrary to popular belief, aren't out here frivolously spending more than they have to. They're running a business, right? They're trying to do as much as they can with as little as possible. You know, so how are we handling that? At Willard, you know, we're, we're helping them identify products and procedures to use less product and grow better crops. You know, we're using the four R's as a guideline, which if you're not familiar is, you know, using the right source, the right rate at the right time, at the right place. Um, to help them see what works on their farm. I talked about the diversity of soils uh, in our small region. One product that works fantastically someplace, and then you go to another farm, and he doesn't get the same results. So bottom line, you know, is we're using our resources as a company to navigate all the strict criteria, all the uh, sustainability requirements. Farmers care more about the land and the environment than almost anyone else that I know, you know, The health of the land, of course, is their business, and it's their livelihood. 
When you're looking at the issue of sustainability, how important is it to factor in the financial sustainability for those that are farming the land? And how does Redox help with that regard? So Redox, I believe, is at the forefront of sustainability in my mind. They have been working with you know, improved efficiency products for a very long time. You know, Being able to apply less total volume not only means a more efficient crop, it improves logistics. Uh, it means less trucks. It means less fuel. It means less time stopped to fill up a machine at the turn row. You know, cost per gallon uh, is more, you know, for any enhanced product uh, compared to commodity fertilizer. But return on that dollar is much greater. And that's how we operate successful businesses, right? You know, return on dollars spent. So I see Redox and Willard together at the forefront of that change and, you know, we're pleased to be walking alongside here at Willard, alongside a company like Redox that has similar values and helping growers do more with less. Can you provide an example of a crop or a farm that you're working with, a specific crop and how Redox has helped? First of all, it's kind of like what crops don't come to mind. Um, <laughs> but for us at Willard, Redox has been instrumental in our success, specifically in produce, vegetable, orchard crops. That's something that really shines when we look at the Redox lineup. Um, but it definitely has a great fit in row crops as well, which are core to the Willard business model uh, since it started 52 years ago. The key product to me that's a differentiator at Redox is the people. Uh, much like our business here at Willard. When I un- enter an unfamiliar territory, a new crop, new grower, or a problem I've never seen, I'm extremely confident that when I reach out uh, to the team at Redox, I can get help building a program that's going to produce real results. And of course, we also have our go-to products. We love our mainstay SI. Uh, it's been a mainstay here. Uh, one of the most impressive products I've worked with is probably RX Platinum. A specific example of that, when we first started using Redox on a produce grower, they grow a lot of uh, greens, collards, and kale, and he had some nutrient deficiencies. They had some uh, potassium issues. It's a real light, sandy soil, so they have a hard time keeping a lot of potash. Uh, So it was visible deficiencies in in the crop. And I said, all right, we're going to run some RX Platinum. We actually ran Triplex Micro with it, and they put that over the top. And about a day and a half, I get a call from the grower, and he says, hey, you got to get down here. I'm oh man, here we go. He said, this stuff has turned around like you wouldn't believe. I've never seen a product, you know, perform like this. And every time they go across the field, RX now is in the tank pretty much. Um, you know, visible uh, quality on that crop is hugely important. Um, and it's been, been a key player there. Um, I really haven't put RX Platinum out anywhere that I wasn't impressed with the results. Um, as we continue to develop our experience with the Redox lineup, you know, we've been really excited to use more of things like DICAP and RootRx and Supreme, especially in the row crop market, improving those to work well. It's amazing to me, and I imagine it's an eye-opener to growers who have maybe been using traditional inputs. They have this massive amount, if I can say that, of more traditional inputs, and then they go to Redox, and it's a very small amount, relatively speaking. Was that surprising to you when you first learned about Redox technology? Oh, definitely. When we can do with a few cage tanks what we used to have to do with a couple trailer loads, people are talking about rates per acre, and we're kind of laughing. You know, a quart, you know, a couple quarts, a pound. 
but the reality is we're getting results from it. And that's a win for everybody. That's great. Uh, Before we get back into farming and helping growers in your region, I am fascinated by your background. You spent a lot of the last decade serving our country in the Army, Uh, time spent in Kentucky, Virginia, Colorado, Washington, D.C., and Afghanistan. I really appreciate your service. And how did that experience shape you personally and professionally? Yeah, so that's definitely, you know, a multifaceted question and a lot of depth there. Um, So my 10 years as an infantry leader, you know, what I consider to be the greatest military in the world, changed my perspective in in, in so many ways. I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't some really difficult months and years, uh, both for me personally and, of course, my wife and family. Uh, but the 100% that made me who I am today, um, I do want to back up a little bit, you know, to give my parents some credit. I believe they were incredibly and, and deliberately um, intentional uh, about their parenting. And I had an amazing upbringing. You know, my parents taught me respect, discipline, hard work, and instilled, you know, the beginning of my faith in God. Um, but the military solidified a lot of that for me and gave me some really incredible experiences leading some of the best men in the world. Uh, it really, really helped me appreciate where I come from, showed me the value of people, uh, working with individuals from all walks of life, you know, coming together and achieving amazing things. My hat is off to you and all those who've served in the military. My dad was in World War II. He was at Normandy. My son-in-law uh, spent time in the Middle East. And I don't think unless you're there, you really fully understand it. But I would like to ask you a little bit on that subject Uh, We just had uh, Memorial Day services here in Idaho, and a local individual served as sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknown for a year and a half, and hearing his story was absolutely phenomenal. My respect just grew with every word he said. So you managed a nine-month counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, including combat. Many of us will never experience that. Uh, How can you possibly... Put that to words. How would you describe that time? My very first tour to Afghanistan was a, a year long. Uh, I spent the first portion uh, of that tour as a platoon leader of a direct action force. So we were tasked with focused targeting of high value targets. We had an extreme amount of autonomy and we had a lot of assets to do our job and incredible talent on the team. You know, we would dissect intelligence packets to learn about our enemy uh, in as much de- detail as possible, you know, prior to taking action. So while in country, I then moved into a role where I helped to lead a company of soldiers as the executive officer. We were spread across three locations in some very austere environments. And when I say austere, um, it's hard to really paint a good picture. But the middle of nowhere, no running water, you know, 40 guys, uh, you know, set to patrol a province, um, you know, probably the the size of New Jersey, and left to our own to really to manage things. So challenging at times can kind of be an understatement, right? Um, but the lessons I learned that first year in Afghanistan were invaluable. I saw previously ordinary men do incredible things and really become heroes. Um, I made friendships that will last a lifetime. Uh, I learned more about myself in that short time than I can even imagine or try to put into words. So imagine, you know, making a series of decisions every single day uh, for a year, and a majority of those decisions carry potential life and death consequences, either for you and your men uh, or the enemy. So, you know, in all, it was hard. It was stressful. 
you know, we all experience loss. We experience wins. Um, one of the hardest things, you know, ironically was kind of coming home where it felt like to me, I'd hit a pause button. Um, but everyone at home just kept on with their lives. So it was like I had gone and lived in an alternate universe for a year and then just came back uh, and was expected just to pick up where we had left off. But so much had changed that no one else understood. We need to do everything we can to help our veterans because what you're describing, I'm sure, is not unique. Before we leave this part of the your story, how did you handle the thought of your mortality? You could have died at any moment, I imagine. There's a lot of close calls, you know. We, we lost some good friends. Um, you, you don't think about it. You do your job. It's a job, right? You go out and uh, you, the ones who live in fear are paralyzed by it. So you accept the fact that it is what it is and this could be it. But, you know, you're there side by side with your brothers and you accept that you signed up to do a job. Um, despite whatever political implications you're there for, you know, we used to get asked, you're like, well, how do you feel about this? And, the answer is it didn't matter. Um, we had orders and we were there and um, we, you know, just did our job every day. We went out and did the best we could. Looking at the military and you, I mean, politics does come up and for right or wrong, uh, it's a favorite talking point of many people these days. At the end of the day, how do you feel about our country, the American dream, things of that nature? Sometimes it gets lost in the news cycle, I think. You know, I think we live in the greatest country in the world. You know, we have freedoms that others only dream about. You know, an immigrant can come here legally and really make something of themselves still uh, if they're willing to work hard. You know, so I absolutely love this country. I uh, was on patrols where our job was to guard polling booths so they weren't bombed, just to have give people the opportunity to, to cast a vote. Uh, so I love the ability here to work hard and get ahead. I, I think that's why it pains me so much to see some of the ridiculousness, um, some of the crazy decisions being made that are impacting all Americans negatively. But at the end of the day, we are, we are far from being beaten. Uh, Americans are industrious and resourceful as a whole. And I refuse to feed into the media cycle, cycle that you, like you talked about. Um, and I refuse to believe that narrative. Uh, I choose to look around me and realize that people are really good. Uh, my day-to-day is, is dealing with amazing people. Um, and this is a great place to live. So I think if we go out in our world and we see what the reality is, it just confirms that the, the media narrative is just that. It's a narrative. Yeah, less of our Twitter feed and more loving one another, and we'll be that much better off. But I agree with you. There's good people out there. We just have to seek them out and uh, not buy into you know, the clickbait, if you will. Intelligence is vital in the military. How important is it for you during that situation in your life to understand not only yourself and your capabilities, but also understanding your adversary, what you were up against? Yeah, so I love this question. I forget how much I've learned or the, some of the experience I've had until I'm asked certain questions. And I think, feel like this is definitely one of those. You know, so military intelligence is really just structured problem solving and planning, right? So during our targeting cycles that I mentioned before, we would study our enemy. And I mean, we would really learn our opponent. 
Yeah, we would observe individuals. We knew where they ate each of their meals. We knew the gait of their walk. We knew the way they moved. We knew more about our enemy. And the more we knew, the more we could predict their next move. Um, we would find them, fix them, meaning get them to a position where we could gain access, whatever that looked like, and then finish them or take action of some kind. Um, however that looked, we would exploit, you know, follow on. We would exploit the site for follow on intelligence or other targets. And then we would analyze the whole thing. What went well? What went wrong? How do we change that uh, for tomorrow? And then we would rinse and repeat. Uh, it was the F3EA cycle. So to bring that into present day, any problem can be tackled the same way, especially agronomically. It's problem solving. The more you understand the soil, the climate, how a crop reacts biologically in a certain condition, and then analyzing that with the goals you're trying to achieve, whether that's agronomically, financially for your business, you can then make informed decisions, right? So you can predict how a plant is going to respond at a certain time or a certain treatment and impact it at the cellular level for stronger sweeter fruit, more yield, or build a plant that is more resistant to stress. I think that's what I love about redox is we're looking at the cellular level and we're not just putting out a magic bullet. We are applying nutrients and products at key timings and making those recommendations to impact them because you know we know our quote-unquote enemy, uh, the plant, and we understand it at the biological level. There are a lot of challenges in agriculture, but you just spoke about a lot of the, the new technology, things of that nature. So how does it leave you in terms of the future of agriculture? What are your feelings? I appreciate farmers not only because they do such phenomenal work and have a you know wonderful role in our world, but I also like to eat. So at the end of the day, how optimistic are you that it's all going to work for agriculture moving forward? Yeah, so the American agriculture industry is obviously critical. A lot of people don't view it this way, but it's a key piece for American homeland security and independence of the American people. So it's not just growing the food, but the entire supply chain top to bottom. If we heavily are dependent on the imports from other countries for our nation's food supply, you know, and that means fuel, transport, everything in between, it puts us in a very vulnerable position. But the American public has to understand this. They need to understand where their food comes from and just, just show up in a grocery store and then in turn value the American farmer. So to answer your question in summary, I place a huge value on our industry, uh, but I'm also very optimistic for what lies ahead. We are doing currently way more with less inputs than ever. We have a big ask, which is feed the world. But I think I can say with some degree of certainty that the growers that I work with are up to the task. I know you're working very hard to help those growers succeed. Wanted to ask you about another area you're very passionate about. Tell me about your family. Yeah, so I have an amazing family. My wife, Amy, and I are high school sweethearts. You know, met in high school and then uh, got married right out of college. And she's traveled with me all over the country. Uh, stuck with me through multiple deployments. Two to Afghanistan, one to Kuwait. Um, She's the, you know, the rock and the glue of the family, and uh, henceforth, we've got three kids. My oldest is 11, my second daughter is 10 now, and my son is 7. Um, so they're amazing, constantly involved in sports, and um, definitely, definitely try to balance uh, time with them and prioritize them. Does Amy uh, understand ag in terms of it's not a 9 to 5? How flexible is she with your schedule? 
she was a suburbanite growing up, uh, so she didn't grow up on a farm, but she completely understands it. Uh, it's actually better than it was in the military life because I'm home, at least sleeping in my own bed almost every night. Uh, so she appreciates it and, you know, dinner's not always at five or six, I can tell you that. And sometimes it's cold getting pulled out of the fridge and she gets it. I am very grateful for our visit today, Tyler, and also for your service. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. It's been a pleasure and look forward to uh, seeing you all soon. That will wrap up this episode. It was great to visit with Tyler Adams. Really appreciate his time and comments. You can find out more about Willard at willardag.com and Redox at redoxgrows.com. We have a lot of resources, including product information and every podcast episode. Feel free to email us at podcast at redoxgrows.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.